You're listening to Certify, Canada's class actions podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action, thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Certified, Canada's Class Actions podcast. And we're here today with uh, Robert Sharp, a very honoured guest. So he's a recently retired Justice of the Court of Appeal for Ontario. And he's the author of numerous leading judgments, including uh, in the class actions context, Dabs on Settlement Approval and Curry and McDonald's on Recognition of Foreign Judgments and Notice. And he was also the author of Jones and Sieg, and that's why we're here today. We're going to talk about the tort of intrusion upon seclusion in Ontario and privacy class actions in general. So thank you very much for joining us, Robert. My pleasure to be with you. And uh, I should also mention that uh, Robert has taught in, in numerous institutions as well, including Oxford University, where I've had the pleasure of bumping into him there. So I should be nice to him because he also knows my doctoral supervisor. So uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, let's get started with the first question. Uh, tell us about your career as a judge, uh, Robert, and especially your experience as a judge on class action cases. Well, I was appointed uh, as a trial judge at was then called the General Division, now the Superior Court of Justice, in 1995. And I sat on that court until uh, 1999 when I was appointed to the Court of Appeal. Uh, When I was a trial judge, I was a member of the class actions team for part of my time there. So I did encounter a number of uh, class actions in that in that uh, capacity. The, these were relatively early years, mm-hmm. uh, but I did have a number of cases that I managed and decided I actually even had a class actions trial, uh, which is not all that common, maybe oh, becoming which, a little more common now. Which one was that? That was a case, I, I can't remember the name of it actually, but it was a case about um, deposits on condominiums. There were a number oh. of different cases. Uh, I just, I'm sorry, it involved uh, uh, it involved the um, development in Toronto, um, and I can't remember the name of the case. Ah, okay. Anyway, one of the earlier it, trials. It, it, that's one of the earlier trials. Mm-hmm. I think it might have even been the first actual class action trial in Toronto, ah. in Ontario. Hmm. Then, uh, 99, I was appointed to the Court of Appeal. And, of course, in the Court of Appeal, unlike the trial court, uh, we really don't specialize. So, um, I, like everyone else, I did hear a number of class action appeals. Uh, but not as a not as a member of a specialist team like on the trial court. Uh, but uh, certainly we've got a steady stream of uh, class action matters uh, appealing, uh, appealing, uh, being appealed to the Court of Appeal. Mm-hmm. OK, great. So we're here today to talk about privacy class actions and and, you know, in the wake of COVID-19, especially privacy is, is a really pressing matter in Ontario and across Canada and frankly across the world. So uh, you wrote the leading decision, uh, Jones and Sieg, in Ontario. So tell us about that decision and how it changed privacy law in Ontario. It was a very interesting uh, case. It involved uh, Ms. Sieg, who had repeatedly looked at the banking records of Jones, who was a fellow bank employee. They didn't actually know each other, but the uh, Sieg had become romantically involved with the with the uh, plaintiff's ex-partner. And so uh, this has uh, prompted her to look at the plaintiff's uh, banking records. And she did something like 174 times, and she could do this because they both were employed by the Bank of Montreal. Mm-hmm. So at the time, uh, 
I would say that what I, the way I would put it is the tort of privacy hadn't quite emerged. Um, there was recognition in earlier cases of appropriation for the defendant's advantage of the plaintiff's name or likeness that had been recognized as a, as a cause of action. Uh, there were several cases uh, dealing with pleadings motions to strike out privacy claims. Now, some of those had succeeded, but a large number of them had not succeeded. Mm -hmm. Judges had been uneasy uh, with the idea of saying that there simply was not possible that there could be an action. So we had that. We had trial judges not willing to say there was no cause of action. We also had the fact that privacy was a recognized interest in several un underlying several other causes of action, such as breach of confidence. Some cases were pleaded in nuisance, sometimes defamation, sometimes property rights. But often privacy, the privacy interest was there. It wasn't a separate cause of action, but it was recognized as a legal interest deserving protection. Mm -hmm. But the self-standing tort of privacy had not yet been recognized, apart, as I say, from appropriation of, per of image or uh, likeness. Now, we, the, ca the case, as you know, reviewed the law in other ju jurisdictions. Uh, we found that there was a growing body of opinion, both in Canada and elsewhere, that privacy should be recognized. Uh, we looked extensively at academic writing. Again, that favored uh, recognizing uh, an action for, for uh, privacy. We looked at the charter jurisprudence, mm -hmm. and that also recognize the value of privacy as deserving of legal interest. And what we decided was it was just time to accept that there was a tort, that the common law was capable of evolving to take into account uh, the, the kind of change that required that move. Uh, and the change, of course, we were looking at was uh, the explosion of technology mm -hmm. and the threat that that posed to uh, individual uh, privacy. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were statutes in place that set up regulatory regimes, but they were very weak on individual remedies uh, to uh, redress wrongs. So we decided that it was time to make that move. And we were very influenced by the American experience, uh, which had struggled and developed the law of privacy over, for over maybe 80 to 100 years. And uh, we were uh, persuaded to adopt the formulation in the US restatement, mm. which divided we thought quite usefully divided privacy into manageable chunks. So it is a four part classification. Uh, the first was the one we recognized intrusion upon the plaintiff's seclusion or solitude into private affairs. Other ones are public disclosure of embarrassing private facts. Pub number two, number three, publicity, which places the plaintiff in a false light in the public eye. And four, I've already mentioned appropriation for the defendant's advantage of the plaintiff's uh, name or likeness. Mm -hmm. We thought that that was helpful. It reflected, as I say, almost 100 years of American experience. And more importantly for us, it broke the tort down into manageable chunks. And that was important for a court that was engaged in what you might describe as a lawmaking exercise. Mm. We wanted to proceed cautiously. We wanted to proceed incrementally. And adopting that four-part classification allowed us to say nothing more than we accept intrusion upon the plane of seclusion as a recognized cause of action. We leave it for another day and another, another set of facts, another situation, another case, whether the other categories uh, should be uh, adopted in Ontario. So that we found extremely uh, useful. Um, as far as the identifying what 
was required to establish this tort or this cause of action, uh, we uh, really there were really kind of five key points, I think, in, in the judgment. Number one, we said that the defendant's conduct must be intentional, and we included within that reckless. In other words, proceeding along a path, knowing that there's a risk and being willing to run that risk. So it's a high fault threshold for this tort, intentional or reckless misconduct on the part of the defendant. The second element, the defendant must have invaded without lawful justification the, private's, uh, the plaintiff's private affairs or concerns. The third is another threshold question. A reasonable person in the position of the plaintiff would regard the invasion as highly offensive, causing distress, humiliation, or anguish. And again, we'll, as we'll, I think as we'll carry on with our discussion, we'll mm -hmm. see that that represents a significant threshold. Mm. So it's an objective test. It isn't just that a person of particular sensitivity can claim. It must be something that objectively would be viewed as highly offensive. We gave examples of health records, uh, sexual practices or orientation, uh, private diaries, employment records, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of harm, th this is the fourth element. We said that proof of harm to unrecognized economic interest is not necessary, not a necessary element of the cause of action. In other words, you don't have to prove tangible financial loss. You could always claim that, but that isn't necessary to establish this cause of action. We didn't think it made sense, but given the nature of the wrong uh, that was inflicted on the plaintiff. Mm -hmm. And number five, we said that given the, nat the intangible nature of the interest protected, the damages will be measured by a modest conventional sum. We didn't want to this to be a runaway floodgates type situation right. with massive uh, damage uh, damage awards. Uh, and again, uh, we'll see how that is significant in in the class action regime. So that's that's basically how it ha what how it happened. It was. Uh, a, a lawmaking judgment in one sense, but the way I like to put it is we made law, but we didn't make law up. As your right. question suggested, there was something there in the law. There was something nascent. There was something within the structure of the law that recognized the privacy interest as worthy of protection, protected it in various ways, and we felt it was a, a sort of a common law legitimate le incremental step for a, an appellate court to take to recognize it uh, as a freestanding tort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a, a couple of days ago, just before uh, this interview, there was a decision uh, from the Court of Appeal for Ontario. For, uh, there was a, a woman who was uh, suing her, un her university and she had already sued in the human rights context. And so uh, there was a, there's a whole question of whether it was an abusive process for her to sue in the superior court and one of the issues that she had was that between the human rights action or the human rights proceeding and her suing in the superior court, uh, Jones and Sieg had been decided. And she said, well, that created uh, a, a cause of action uh, in intrusion upon seclusion. And therefore, I've got you know this, this new material to go with and it's not an abusive process. And uh, the Court of Appeal said, no, 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 that didn't. Jones and Seek didn't create uh, a cause of action. It recognized one that was already available at common law, which I think is quite interesting. So that's um, Visage and Alia, uh, and it's 2020 ONCA 690 for anyone who wants to look it up. But what, so what are your thoughts on that? Because you, you sort of said, well, it was a, not a law, it was a lawmaking exercise, but not a lawmaking up exercise. You're really sort of discovering yeah, what was that, already there. That, 
that's the way I'd put it. I mean, it, it as I say, I think it, we we were working with recognized legal sources mm-hmm. that su- strongly suggested that this should happen. It hadn't happened. I mean, it, it, it's it's true that it hadn't happened, uh, and there was a certain amount of uncertainty about it. But we felt that it was there. So I I I, I would hesitate, of course, to disagree with my colleagues mm-hmm. uh, in any event, but uh, my former colleagues. And I'd have to look at the judgment, but mm. but what they say s- s- sounds right to me. It's 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 not. This was not a brand new invention. Mm-hmm. It didn't come out of. The, it wasn't like a piece of legislation. It was right. something that Jones was able to establish in a court of law on the basis of recognized legal sources. Mm-hmm. And had those recognized legal sources uh, recognized the recklessness element? Because that that seems like a, a possible sort of development to me not not just right. intentional breaches but also reckless which kind of opens the door to negligence uh, yeah. what are your thoughts on that well that certainly uh was part of the american law mm-hmm. american cases certainly uh, uh require recklessness for the intrusion of seclusion um uh, you're right that not all the contours of this tort uh, were identified before our judgment. Uh, I've given you five elements. Uh, we had to work uh, uh, to develop those elements. Uh, uh, and, and uh, you, as I say, the particularly found useful, the American uh, restatement, the, mm-hmm. a classical artic- classic article by the great tort scholar Prosser from 1960, mm-hmm. and then one back in the 1890s from Louis Brandeis. These are the these are sort of the classical pieces of writing, mm-hmm. uh, which we which we found very helpful. Um, so, it could could someday a court say recklessness should not be required? I, it is certainly conceivable. Um, I I don't think that Jones and Sig will be the last word on the law of privacy. It's 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 an area, a developing area. It's bound to grow, change, shift, as new cases come along, as new situations come along. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier the um, the regulatory framework regarding privacy in Ontario. So, uh, you know, given the extent of that regulatory framework, why is a common law tort required? You know, what are the gaps right. that the common law tort fills? Right. Well, in our view, the main gap was that the, stat- the statutes did not give injured parties an effective remedy to redress the wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they erect a very helpful, important uh statutory regulatory regime uh, which governs this area uh, but they simply did not deal with the problem of redressing the wrong um, in in the Jones case it was uh, federal legislation because it was it, it, the bank it was a bank uh, that was involved but the same applied I think to the statutes in Ontario um, they're very important regimes. They probably actually do cons- way more. I don't have any doubt. They do way more to protect privacy than private law actions. Mm. Uh, but they don't address individual wrongs. That is the function of the common law of tort. Common law of tort is exists to redress wrongs. Mm-hmm. And we felt that tort law had to be brought up to date to fill what we perceived to be uh, a gap in the law. And the statutes simply did not deal with that problem. Mm. Okay. So we were... Yeah, go ahead. No, yeah. sorry. No, I, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah. Uh, and so we'll move on to the next question then. So you mentioned earlier that uh, one of the requirements is that a reasonable person must regard the invasion as highly offensive, causing distress, humiliation or anguish. So tell us, uh, you mentioned that that's been a difficult hurdle for plaintiffs yeah. to surmount. T- tell us more about that. Well, I think it is, it, it, is, it was meant to be and it has, it has seen, it, it, 
has continued to be a significant hurdle. What we were worried about in the in the Jones and Sig situation was, uh, un, un, sometimes you have people who are very, very sensitive, uh, mm-hmm. unusually sensitive about personal information. It's an area where opinions vary considerably. Some people don't worry about it. Some people worry a great deal about it. And we were very concerned uh, that we open the door to people uh, being able to sue on a purely subjective perception that their privacy uh, had been invaded. So we deliberately set the bar fairly high. Mm. And yes, that has definitely been a problem, certainly in some uh, class actions, that has that has been a problem. Um, there, I can give you a couple of examples. That There's a great. case, mm-hmm. yeah, Kaplan and Casino Rama, the Casino Rama mm-hmm. case, 2019, ONSC 2025. That was a case where a hacker got access to uh, uh, the casino's uh, database, then made ransom threats, posted some of the information online, uh, which would reveal that the the uh, members of the class had visited a casino, but there was really no consistent uh, pattern. The plaintiffs um, sue the casino. They can't. They don't sue the hacker. They probably don't know who the hacker is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the privacy commissioner actually had looked into the situation, said that the casino had been negligent, but that it now had its house in order, and the uh, certification judge refused uh, certification. And uh, on a number of, of grounds, uh, one being uh, that uh, he said there's no there's no evidence uh, that the determination of whether an invasion or intrusion would be highly offensive to a reasonable person could be decided on a class-wide uh, or common basis. Uh, that individual inquiries would be. Re- would be individual inquiries would be needed to determine whether class members were in fact embarrassed or humiliated by the disclosure of that the fact and i think basically he thought that simply having disclosed that you had attended a casino uh, probably wasn't enough uh, to to rise to the level of humiliation uh, or offensiveness required mm-hmm. by the by the tort um Another case, uh, Brutzas, B-R-O-U-T-Z-A-S and Rouge Valley Health System, 2018, ONSC 6315. Uh, The employees of a hospital had disclosed contact information of maternity patients. They disclosed this to to an outfit that was selling education investment funds. So they wanted to know who'd had a baby and get get to them fairly, fairly quickly. Um, and, and the uh, employees uh, had disclosed the, the, mater- the uh, contact information, as I say, of these maternity patients. And again, the court said no, uh, contact information of that kind is not highly offensive. People put birth notices in the paper. It's no secret mm-hmm. that you have a baby. So the fact that you'd been to a maternity ward to have a baby is, isn't, does not rise to the level of uh, offensiveness that would be required. On the other side, uh, uh, a case called Stewart and Demi, I think that's how you pronounce it, D-E-M-M-E, 2020, O-N-S-C-83, a nurse uh, employed by a hospital used uh, patient records of surgery and other procedures to obtain a s- astonishingly large quanti- mm. quantity of drugs. Of, 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 I think they were Percocets. Yeah. Um, now, uh, 
the court said these seemed, she said it was for her use. They thought it was likely also to supply uh, drug dealers. And in that case, the court did certify the class action, saying that the damages might not be all that enormous, but providing confidential information uh, of your surgical and other medical procedures to a drug dealer uh, satisfies the highly offensive standard. So I think this is a hurdle. There's no question about it that it is a hurdle, uh, that you're going to need evidence of uh, offensiveness some cases will speak for themselves in a sense. I mean, it is an objective test. Some mm -hmm. cases will be dealing with information that is so obviously personal and so obviously, and the disclosure of which would so obviously be offensive and injurious uh, that, you, uh, that you'll, you'll surmount the hurdle. But it is definitely a hurdle uh, that will, uh, will stand in the way of several of, of privacy actions and so, some privacy class actions. Mm -hmm. Okay, and another requirement, uh, as you mentioned previously, is that the defendant must have willfully or recklessly invaded the privacy or intruded upon the seclusion of the plaintiff. So how has this requirement been problematic in the context of third-party hackers? You mentioned the Kaplan and Casino-Rama right. case just now. Right, right. Well, it, it's problematic in the, in the sense that um, if, you, if you could find and sue the hackers, <laughs> I don't think you'd have much trouble showing that that was willful. Mm -hmm. The problem is that your likely target is going to be the party that got hacked, as in the, as in the Casino Rama. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, that becomes much more difficult in that, in that event. You're going to have to show recklessness. You're not, probably not going to be able to show willfulness if they got hacked, but you ha you're going to have to be show recklessness, that mm -hmm. they were so negligent that they knew there was a risk uh, that their in the information they were storing could be stolen, could be hacked. Um, and they simply failed to uh, heed that risk and take steps to, to avoid it. Mm. Um, the, I think the, the law is evolving to some extent on this. Um, the, uh, there, uh, again, I can give you a couple of, uh, of examples. There's a case called Agnew Americano and Equifax Canada, mm. 2019 ONSC 7110, uh, which involved the hacking of personal uh, credit uh, uh, information. There's an extensive discussion in that case of the recklessness requirement. I think it would be a very good place to start if you're dealing with this problem in the context of, of hacking. Um, the law is clearly developing. Uh, and in that case, the case, what the claim was certified. The, 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 the judge, in a, as I say, in a very detailed and lengthy judgment, uh, concluded that there was a sufficient basis uh, for the allegation of recklessness to allow the claim to go forward, uh, and he certified the claim, refused to, to strike it out at, at the at the pleading stage, and so the the claim proceeds. And uh, when that case, if that case ever does get tried, we may learn some more. Mm. So it's a developing area, and those two cases are kind of a useful contrast between the two two sides of the coin, the Casino Rama and the Equifax case uh, on the other on the other side. Mm. So. Um... I mean, it's not always the case. So usually uh, privacy class actions get started when class members receive some kind of notice that their data may have been compromised. So is this necessarily going to be enough to support a motion for certification? And uh, if not, what else is needed? Well, clearly it's not enough just mm. to, to have, get a notice that your, your, your data uh, has been, uh, there has been a data breach. That will not satisfy the elements of the cause of action that I've claimed in particular. 
wrongfulness of the defendant's conduct uh, and the nature of the invasion. Uh, is it one that a reasonable person would regard as highly offensive, uh, causing distress, humiliation, uh, or anguish? So it is merely a start, I would say. A, a, I would say a, a privacy, a, a notice of that kind is purely a start mm. that you've got a lot more digging to do, a lot more work to do to develop a claim around those uh, elements of the, of the cause of action. Mm-hmm. Okay, but there are advantages and also disadvantages of bringing privacy claims in the class action context, aren't there? So can you run us through those? What are the advantages and disadvantages? Well, I think the, the, uh, the, the advantage, uh, obviously the advantage is uh, that you've got a low value claim uh, because of the cap or the, the conventional uh, damage award. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got a claim that is very uneconomic uh, to litigate. Uh, only the most determined uh, plaintiff, the most well, uh, highly well-resourced plaintiff, is going to pursue that claim. I mean, I guess they can be pursued in, in, in the, in the uh, small claims court, and, and perhaps some of them are. But with, when you're dealing with these large cases, uh, it's unlikely that someone's going to be able to pursue it. So mm-hmm. th- that's the that's the main the main advantage uh, of, uh, of of a, of a class action. Um, uh, another advantage would be that because of the conventional award, individual damage assessment should be less of a problem. So it should be easier to satisfy a judge that you've got a common issue. On, on on damage assessment, it's mm-hmm. not going to ta- it shouldn't require uh, individual individual uh, damage assessment. So those that, those I would see as the main uh, as the main uh, advantages. How about the disadvantages? The disadvantages, um, obviously, uh, we really have to almost go back to Jones and Sig mm. and our concern about floodgates. And and we expressed a concern about floodgates. We didn't. I don't think we said anything about class actions in the judgment, but certainly class actions were in the back of our minds. Um, and so the, the, the potential problems we've sort of already canvassed. Mm. You, th- this high fault threshold, which is a definite barrier, uh, and the high threshold for offensiveness to the plaintiff. So I think, that, and, and to some extent, that the offensiveness requirement, some cases sort of suggest that that is an individual, that's a requirement that that requirement will require individual consideration. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure that's going to always be the case. As right. I said before, I think there are, there will be cases where it is just obvious that the, um, the that the the, the, the the disclosure of information would be offensive. Uh, and we, I've given a, given a couple of examples of the of the private private uh, medical records regarding. Uh, uh, surgeries and other medical procedures. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be another example. Uh, I think there have been cases, though, uh, not not so much in class actions, but other cases involving credit checks. Right. Uh, the court said no. A, a credit check is is that's something people do all the time. That is not going to be highly offensive to have that have that sort of thing leaked. So there's that judgment call about the offensiveness of the conduct, as well as the high threshold of uh, fault uh, that uh, will be problematic. Mm-hmm. But in the damages context, it's uh, you know you've got this sort of minimum um, 
amount or uh, threshold that you discussed in Jones and Seek, but uh, you know, class members will also be if they've lost out-of-pocket expenses, for example, yes. having to get new credit cards or credit checks or whatever. Yes. That that can be included in the damages assessment too. No. Yeah, that's mm. a very good point, and and I think some people have kind of missed that that when, when we said there was a be a conventional award, mm. we did not, of course, mean that you couldn't couldn't claim for actual out-of-pocket loss. Of course, right. that that's the whole purpose of tort. So there's nothing there's nothing exceptional about that. So if you have a case where an individual is going to assert a claim for particular damages that individual suffered, uh, that, of course, will be something that would require individual assessment. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in a lot of these cases, that is not the case, that a lot of these cases, it's simply just the insult of having had that information disclosed that the plaintiff uh, or class member is uh, concerned about. But if there are specific damages, out-of-pocket losses, specific economic harm that has occurred to that plaintiff on account of the wrong, that will require an individual assessment, and that would be awkward uh, as a common issue in a class action, obviously. Mm -hmm. Okay, and are there certain kinds of privacy claim, would you say, that are more amenable to class treatment than others? Um, well, I think... Uh, I think probably there are, it's a little hard to say right now because we're still in a development stage. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say that the inclusion on, intrusion on seclusion tort in Jones is probably of the four, the most likely, the most amenable uh, right. to class action treatment. Um, the others that, that have now been recognized in Ontario law, uh, at the trial level at least, uh, I mentioned public disclosure of embarrassing private facts. Mm -hmm. That's been recognized in a couple of judgments. Well, it's a little difficult to imagine how you'd construct a class action around that um, about private, uh, embarrassing private facts. That's, that's a highly individualistic mm -hmm. uh, situation. So it, it, it might be conceivable that facts will emerge, but it would be a bit of a challenge. The third one, publicity which places the plaintiff in a false light in the public eye. Well, again, being put in a false light in the public eye strikes me as a, as a rather individual matter. Mm. And so I think it's going to be a challenge to develop a class action around that claim. And similarly for the fourth one, appropriation for the defendant's advantage of the plaintiff's name or likeness. Again, that seems to me to be more, much more um, individual. Uh, the thing with uh, intrusion on seclusion is you can imagine it on, uh, imagine it occurring, as we've discussed, on, a, on, a, on, a, on the basis of a breach, of a data breach that affects a large number of people uh, and doesn't require that individualized uh, uh, assessment. So I think, I think that the, the, probably the intrusion on seclusion is the most amenable uh, to uh, class actions of the four branches of the, of the tort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at the cases that have arisen since Jones and Sieg, so we've got the uh, the public uh, disclosure of embarrassing facts and uh, deliberately placing the uh, plaintiff in a false light, uh, which uh, there I think that all of those cases that have arisen are individual cases. They're not mm -hmm. they're not class actions. But we do have, don't we, from BC, we've got the Duez and Facebook case, which uh, I think involved something similar to uh, the defendants using the plaintiff's likeness for its own profit or advantage. So that potentially could be yeah. uh, amenable to class treatment. 
yeah, I don't know that case, but okay. but uh, I should. <laughs> it's a, yeah, no, I'm just thinking of uh, comparing with other jurisdictions. And yeah. it's interesting yeah. uh, talking of other jurisdictions, and I'm sure you're aware of the developments in England that a lot of the uh, expansion of, of class actions, or at least the, the old representative action rule, has been used in data breach cases. Right. And uh, and that's, uh, that's really a forefront of, of the development of class actions in England, which... Right. Uh, which is interesting as well. So, um, so then you talked about the recovery um, of class members. Generally, it's going to be individually quite low. The damages that they get uh, in a privacy class action. So, given that low recovery, what do you think is the main purpose of of privacy class actions? Is it just to compensate class members, or what are the well, purposes? I mean, I think I think there is a compensatory element, even though the amount is low. I think mm-hmm. there is an act. As I said, these claims are very tough to litigate on an individual basis. I think so I think there is an access to justice purpose and a mm-hmm. compensatory purpose. But I would have to say I think that the main uh, purpose of class actions in this area will be uh, behavior uh, behavior modification. Mm-hmm. Um, if you put enough of these cases together, you come up with a fairly significant uh, amount of money uh, at, at, that will be at stake and uh, the threat of a class action uh, I think should be a significant uh, incentive to defendants in possession of sensitive or private information to take uh, appropriate uh, uh, precautions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure that there's an argument on the other side, maybe not so much that would emerge in the context of litigation, but from more from a sort of a more scholarly or policy orientation. Uh, and it would be this that if uh, if we're justifying, as a matter of policy matter, class actions uh, on the basis of behavior modification, uh, that might be a weak argument because we have this elaborate regulatory regime in place. Mm. And the regulatory regime probably is going to do a much better job of regulating behavior because of the tools that, that are available to the regulator, do a much better job at regulating that behavior than the kind of happenstance of uh, private litigation. So the behavior modification argument, I think, is certainly there. But I think, from as I say, assessing this from a policy perspective, it may not be quite as strong in this area as it would be in other areas because of the elaborate regulatory mechanisms that we have uh, in, the, in the privacy uh, area. Uh, so, you know, do we really need behavior modifications from class actions? I think that would be the argument of the of the defendant's bar, if you like. Right, right. And yeah. we've had an episode on that uh, as well. So, so um, you know, talking of the regulatory framework then, do you think that has to step up as well? Because, uh, you know, privacy is an ever-evolving field. As I said, after following COVID, there's been huge concerns about privacy, uh, you know, contact tracing apps and right. other kinds of things. So do you think the regulatory framework also needs to keep up with the law just as the common law does? Well, I think, I'm, sh- I'm sure it does. I mean, I, I do not claim to have any expertise in uh, about the regulatory uh, framework. And mm-hmm. I know it's, 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 it's extremely complex, it's mm. extremely elaborate, uh, and people are highly specialized uh, in that area. But I think generally speaking, what we're confronting here is burgeoning technology mm that poses a problem for the law. And the law simply has to continue to take into account that technological change. This was a big motivating factor behind our decision in Jones and Sig. We said that the 
that technology posed this threat and that the law had to meet that threat. It's interesting mm. when you go back in time to the, to, the, to the very beginning of the idea of a private law action for breach of privacy in the 1890s, it was photography. And mm. if you read that old article I mentioned by uh, Justice Brandeis, he wasn't justice at the time, he's talking about the problem, the, 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 the invasion of privacy through photography. And, and the development of photography. So it sounds a bit quaint to us, but it's the, sa it's the same problem. Mm. What, you're, what you're saying is we have a new technolo technology here. This new technology poses a threat to certain interests that we recognize or should recognize in our law. And our law simply can't stand still. It's going mm. to have to shift. It's going to have to change. It's going to have to evolve if we are to protect that interest adequately. And I think that's certainly the case for the common law, as we recognized in Jones and Sig. And as I say, that that area has that law has developed even in the eight years or whatever it is since the case was decided. Uh, I'm sure that the regulatory framework is also uh, constantly uh, evolving. And I think it's mm -hmm. going to be a, a constant struggle for the law to keep up with technology yeah. uh, in, in this area, given the exponential changes that we're witnessing. Mm which are terrifying in some respects. But, well, I mean, yeah. they're terrifying, but they're also amazing and mm. helpful. And, and look, you talked about COVID. How would we have survived COVID without technology, True. without doing what we're doing here today, mm -hmm. uh, without being able to have lectures and seminars and meetings and trials and mediations and all sorts of things uh, through technology. So we, 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 we have to take the advantage, but we have to also recognize the risks and we have to be prepared to change things to, to deal with those risks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. So then, you know, you, you've talked about the need for um, the for, for privacy, uh, the common law tort of privacy, uh, intrusion upon seclusion and mm -hmm. other privacy torts to evolve. So uh, what do you see for the future of privacy and particularly privacy class actions in Ontario and across Canada? Uh, particularly, do you think the Supreme Court of Canada will weigh in at some point on this issue? I fully expect they will. And uh, uh, I fully expect that the Supreme Court will weigh in. And I would expect them to weigh in because mm because we've got this pattern across the country. I haven't mentioned, we haven't mentioned yet that in several provinces, I think it's six or seven provinces, there are actually statutory causes of action for breach of privacy. They don't say much more than that. They, they, they simply say that you can sue for invasion of privacy. They don't give any kind of framework or mm. ca uh, describe the elements of the cause of action. So we've got, we've got that pattern. We've got the Ontario Jones and Sig, which has been adopted certainly, I think, in Nova Scotia, perhaps in one or two other uh, provinces. We're seeing how uh, Ontario is gradually has gradually adopted the other elements of the four-part classification in the re restatement. Mm -hmm. We have legal scholars, um, some of whom approve of Jones and Sig, some of whom definitely do not approve of it, <laughs> say we should have gone the, the more English route and you worked with the concept of breach of, of confidence. Right. Uh, some people don't like the cap on damages. Some people don't like the high thresholds that we've described. And obviously, this is a it's a it's like a, a, a brewing cauldron mm -hmm. that at some point will work its way uh, up to the Supreme Court in, in one or more decisions. And uh, with the benefit of, uh, you know, maybe a decade's experience in the in the trial and a, appellate courts, 
the Supreme Court will sit back and look at it and uh, and undoubtedly uh, make some changes and and rationalize uh, the the the, uh, the pattern of, of of law that we're that we're developing. So I would fully expect this this uh, issue at some point, and I would say some point soon, mm. uh, to go to the Supreme Court, whether in the context of a class action or otherwise. Quite likely in the context of a class action, because uh, that that uh, provides the economic incentive right. to take a case all the way. Mm-hmm. So it's it, likely that it will be a class action, one or more class actions. Mm. So and I'm, I'm, I'm very anxious to see what they say. Oh, me too. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> definitely something to look forward to. Yes. So uh, th- those were all my questions, uh, Robert. Do you do you have anything else to add before we sign off? Uh, no, I think we've I think we've we've co- covered the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've I've confessed where I think Jones and Sig might change the mm. damages, the, the the high thresholds. Um, I think we were right uh, to impose those, uh, but as I say. Uh, when you write a judgment like that, it's just the start, mm. uh, and you you know that there are going to be more cases, more situations, and uh, that with when you get a richer fact pattern before a court, as it will, as I've said, come before the Supreme Court, uh, with with a bit more experience behind you, mm. uh, the situation may well look different. So we we may well see some changes. Uh, I'm not giving up on those. I, as I say, I think they were right at the time, mm-hmm. but I recognize that, w- that it was the start of a, of a longer conversation. Mm. Excellent. Well, well, we'll wait to see what happens in this area. So thank you very much for sharing your insights, Robert, and uh, thank you uh, for your time today. And uh, and take care. Have a great day. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Okay, Bye. all the best. Bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast, hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins, and the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org. Website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. Till next time, stay safe and stay classy.